Is this good? Okay, you can hear me now. Hey guys, um, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it. Um, it's marvelous. Um, my name is Ben Hooper. I am. Um, I work at a church in Chattanooga, so not far, just up the road, uh, and uh, I'm a big uh, Grace Community uh, fan. Uh, I love what y'all are doing, and y'all are um, an amazing pillar of faithfulness in your community. Um, one thing that uh, should be mentioned is um, I am Ted and Mary Lou's son-in-law, Ted and Mary Lou Strawbridge, and so uh, of the time that they were here, I come and visit with my wife, uh, and um, we just love y'all, and um, I'm, I'm thankful and, and selfishly thankful that uh, Mary Lou is with uh, at our church. Um, so sorry for your loss, um, but y'all y'all are amazing. Um, for those of y'all that knew them, uh, this morning we're looking at uh, Jonah four. If you want to get the Bible out, uh, it's on page uh, eight twenty four of those red Bibles that are, are there. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we're jumping to the end of this book that we know probably one thing about. What's one thing that we know about Jonah you think of in Sunday school? A big fish, a big whale. Yeah. And we're actually looking at a uh, part of the story that's really never talked about. Uh, someone said that they looked at a book of Jonah uh, of a children's book that their children had. And uh, two of the three books that they had didn't have this chapter in there. It just wasn't talked about. And I think it's the most important chapter of the book. And so before we read it and before we talk about it... Um, you are many things. Um, Sandra, you are a neighbor, right? You're a neighbor. And you're um, a mother to seven, right? As she told me this morning, that's, there are just jewels just filling her crown right now. Um, Rachel Anderson is many things, is she not? Amazing mother and wife and daughter and so many other things. Stephen Sutherland is many things, right? We can go on and on and... Um, What's beautiful about this place is that it's represented by so many beautiful characteristics of who you are, because you're all endowed with this irreducible glory, this just beauty of life. And the only way uh, Holy Spirit, or one way Holy Spirit works, is when you begin to say, this actually means something. And this actually speaks to the different things like being a mother to seven and being a neighbor and owning a landscaping company and being a fundraiser and working at Covenant College. What's beautiful about God's word is that it speaks into every nook and cranny of our life, not just this privatized Sunday morning thing. And, and what I love about Grace Trenton is that it actually says we believe that. We believe that God and his kingdom is up to something and that Dade County actually is in that something. And so this morning, I'm going to just stop for a moment and let you sit and think and pray, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. But what nook and cranny, right, what, what part, what sphere of your life do you need that song we just sang to be good, right? Your labor is not in vain. A song that's just pregnant with hope. And this morning we'll see something that, that really is showing the, the nature of who God is. And we need to see it this morning, but what I would offer you first is where in your life do you need to see God work? 
in a way that is so captivating. And so with that in mind, y'all just close your eyes. I'm going to do it too. Um, ask that questions of yourself. Where do you need the Lord to show up and remind you your labor is not in vain? So let's just pray for a quick moment. And I'll, I'll pray as we begin. Remind us this very day that we can say our labor is not in vain because you are up to something, King Jesus. And thank you for these, my friends, some I know, some I don't. Uh, but in this very morning, would you work here in Trenton, Georgia, here at Grace Community and remind us. The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Remind us that's true, we pray. Amen. So, uh, Jonah 4. Uh, I'm going to read it, and y'all feel free to read along with me. It says, uh, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I, t- I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out of the city and sat down a place east of the city. There he made a shelter, himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade over his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, So I, I, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant. Though you do not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for a great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also much animals? Uh, so we're, again, we're picking up at the very end of Jonah. Uh, Greg Dubel, how does the book of Jonah start? Yeah, what's, what's, what does God tell Jonah to do? Go to Nineveh. What is his job? What's Jonah's job? Yeah, he's a prophet. He, he wants to share the gospel and share the good news and tell of what God's up to. And God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. 
And Jonah is this Israelite prophet. And in that time, it's the time of exile, which means God had called Israel, you're my children. Right? You're, my, you're the people I will work through. And yet, after he said that, because of their unfaithfulness, uh, an enemy came in. And that enemy was the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came in and overtook the Israelites. And they did things to the Israelites that were so horrific that we can't mention because there are children in the room. And God says, go to this place called Nineveh. The capital of Assyria is Nineveh. So God is saying to Jonah, you're the minority in this culture, right? You are a slave to a captor. Go to your captor and preach repentance to them. This wicked, pagan, horrible nation. And so because he hears that call, he says, no, 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 no. And he gets on a boat and he goes to Tarshish. Now, we don't know what that means, really, geographically. We know what it means to go to Chickamauga or go to uh, Bright Sand Mountain. But what Tarshish is, was the farthest west of the known world at that time. So God it tells Jonah, go to this place called Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I'm going to go to the actually the opposite, very end of the world, and say, see ya. Of course, we know that he gets on a boat, um, he gets thrown off the boat, a, a fish swallows him, uh, he prays a prayer in the fish, the fish then vomits Jonah, it says vomit actually, onto the seashore, he goes to Nineveh, Jonah, a prophet, uh, preaches an eight-word sermon, and the whole city of Nineveh repents. And this is where we find ourselves, right? After an eight-word sermon, a pagan city repents, and now Jonah's angry, um, Jimmy Kimmel is this uh, late night talk show host. Uh, he interviews people and, and talks with people. And um, he has uh, this video montage he does every year. It's called, uh, I told my kids I ate their Halloween candy. And what it is, is that it's, it's parents telling their kids, I ate all your Halloween candy. And it's all gone. And uh, look it up when you get home. But it, it shows all of these kids react to finding out my candy is gone and my parents have eaten it. And they say, I don't love you anymore. Uh, they say, I hate you. They say, I'm going I'm going to go to the Belize now. Um, and they get their orange buckets and they punt the jack-o'-lantern plastic buckets. Um, go home and watch it. But, but what it is, is a display of these children losing, uh, they're really their first thing, right? This candy's theirs. They've never bought anything, really. They don't own anything, really. Whoops. But this candy is all that they have to their name. I'm going to take this off. Can you hear me now? Okay. We're good? Um... It's all they have to their name. And so when they lose it, they're undone. And it's a gift in the first place, right? It's not really theirs. And what we see in Jonah in chapter 4 is this Jimmy Kimmel-esque thing. This diva prophet of Jonah is saying to God, I'm angry because you have given mercy to my enemy. You've taken something from me that's really not mine in the first place, and you've given it away. And so with that in mind, we'll see two really big things today. We'll see the kind of the emotions and person of Jonah, and then we'll see 
the character of God in this story. And it's really hard because it's an Old Testament passage. We're picking up on the very end of it. Um, but it's really extremely beautiful. And so, uh, with that in mind, we'll look at three points. First, uh, the revealing character of anger. Second, a grieving God. And third, uh, the perfect prophet. So, uh, success for Wade Anderson is um, you want the, a great big job. Uh, as in, you want a great bid that gets you where you put all the plants in on fill in the blank, right? Um, who, other, who can I pick on? Stephen, what's what does success in your vocation look like? Uh, bringing in a lot of assets. Yeah, that's like the upper echelon, right? You want to bring in things to manage. Um, think about what success in your vocation looks like, because Jonah has just done it. Right? He has preached this eight-word sermon uh, to an enemy nation, and they've repented. And yet, after that, he goes outside of the city. And he pretty much shakes his fists at God and says, this makes me so upset. Uh, he doesn't respond in excitement, uh, but he responds actually uh, in pure and utter anger. And what we see of God in this kind of pure, utter anger of Jonah is God enters into counseling mode with him. And so as Jonah is angry, we can look in verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city, sat east of the city, and made a booth for himself. He sat underneath it uh, in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came the next day, he appointed a worm that attacked the plants so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. So Jonah's anger is compounding. He's angry that he has to go to his enemy. He's angry that his enemy is saved. He's angry that God has taken away a plant that God had given to him. It's all this compounding anger. And we should know and point out that his anger is really not about this plant. Uh, he's, he's not angry about a plant dying. He's angry about his God giving away the mercy he himself has received. Um, he is angry because a love of his is threatened. And that's the anatomy of anger. We become most angry when our love is threatened. When something you love is threatened by something else, you will become angry. Uh, you drive down the street, and there's a speed limit, is there not? Uh, and you're going too fast. And you're driving in a neighborhood, and you see a family walking. And from far off, they know you're driving too fast. And you see a mother or father's mouth move and mouth the words, slow down. And then they give you the arm pump, right? They do this, bringing down the house. Uh, they're showing emotions of anger because you 
and me are threatening their love. Their love for their children is safety and well-being. And they are tasked to take care of them. And so when your speed is endangering their love, they will let you know by mouthing and arm pumping. Jonah's love is this. He is a prophet of God. Therefore, he holds uh, mercy and the person of God and the attributes of God close to him. It's a part of who he is. It's part of his job. And all of a sudden, when God doesn't play by Jonah's rules, and he actually just gives away the things that he loves so much to even his enemy, he's furious. He's so furious, he says he wants to die. He has a love of governing and withholding the mercy of God as if it's his own. Uh, There's a, a person that wrote a book named Ed Welch, and the book is called uh, A Small Book About a Big Problem. And it's about anger. And Ed Welch in that book says this. He says, What makes us so important that life must go according to our plans? We cannot script the events of our lives. Yet when life throws us in unexpected trouble, an arrogant person gets angry because his or her kingly right has been violated. Jonah's kingly right has been violated. And that kingly right is this, being in control of who gets mercy and who doesn't. To him, his enemy deserved zero mercy. So when God gives it to him, he's furious. He's furious. He's so, he's so upset he wants to die. It grinds his gears. He's livid. In Jonah's case, he wants to die when his love is threatened. Uh, As someone who struggles with anger, I know that uh, I feel the inflammation of my heart when I begin to have these nasty thoughts, vile thoughts, deep thoughts against my transgressor. When someone does me wrong, my mind will start going and manufacturing their intent, what they meant to do, how they hurt me, how they should pay. Right? Anger is this uh, emotion that loves to see itself exist even more and more. And that's what we see in Jonah. And so this morning, it's a, it's a bad question to ask you, do you get angry? A better question is to say, When you feel the inflammation of anger, when do you need to look in your heart and say, what kingly right of mine is being violated? Where have I given myself an allowance of feeling like I have this kingly right that I am due, and I have, and I should have? It's being violated, therefore I'm going to get angry. And what love of yours is being threatened? when you feel the emotion of anger. That's the, that's the nature of anger. And anger is a thing that distorts perspective. Right? Jonah's so angry he wants to die. And he says he's so angry he wants to die because a plant dies. It's absurd. Anger takes us places where we don't ever thought we would ever go or ever want to go. So if Jonah is someone marked in this story by anger, what is God marked by? 
and it's the second idea that we see, uh, we see a God who grieves. Now that sounds tough to hear, but let's unpack it. Jonah is fueled by anger, and God here is fueled by, uh, by compassion. This, this very last couple of verses is the heart of the book. It's not about a big fish or about Jonah running away to, uh, from a mission of God. It's really about God showing himself. It says in verses 10 and 11, the very last words of the book, it's this cliffhanger. And God has the final word. And here's what God says to this, this prophet that says, I'm so angry that this plant died and that that nation and that country and that city got mercy. That God says this to his prophet. He says in verse 10, And the Lord said to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God here is saying he's grieved. He's filled with compassion. It's what marks God in this story. And so to know the compassion of God, we need to ask two quick questions. One, what does God delight in? What does God delight in? Uh, In the beginning of the Bible is Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And Moses is writing to the Israelites saying, this is what your God is like. And he says in Genesis 1 and 2, God made uh, things. Days one, two, three, four, five. And, and after every single one of those first five days, God looked at his creation at the end of the day and said, it's what? It's good. On the sixth day, he made man, and then what did he say? It's very good, yeah. It's not just good. It's very good. And on the seventh day, God rested. And God didn't rest because he was tired. God rested because everything he had made in days one through six was perfect. Nothing else needed to be done. That's why God rested. And he rested because it was so perfect because he, the creator, and his creatures were in his creation. Everything was dwelling perfectly. That's what God delights in. The fact that he, the creator... And his creation are together. They're perfectly in harmony. And there's no strain. And that's why ever since sin entered the world, God has been trying to make this gap that this sin creates closer and closer and closer. Until what he delights in will, as we're told in the Bible in Revelation, will happen again. The joy of our faith is not that we have our sins forgiven, though that's a part of our faith. The joy of our faith is that we're with God again. That's what the good stuff is. That's what God delights in. So the first question is what God delights in is being with us. The second question is what grieves God? If God is compassionate, why is he grieved? And in this story it says, Jonah, don't you get it? You are so grieved and so sad because a plant died. You know what grieves me, Jonah? 
the fact that there's 120,000 people in that city that just so happens to be your enemy. And they don't even know their right hand from their left. Which means they're so lost. And you know what else is in there? There's even a lot of cattle. There's a lot of animals. It's all to show Jonah, don't you get it? Don't you know what I'm about? I'm a God who delights in being with my people. And you know how that happens? It's by giving mercy. And you know what grieves me? Is when I'm separated. Jonah is upset because his enemies, those 120,000 people, is getting the exact same mercy that he got. And that doesn't sit well. The perfect candidates of God's mercy are the nasty and the vile and the ones who have no business ever belonging to God. And yet it's oftentimes those people who God uses the most. So this morning, who in your life is far from being a candidate of God's mercy in your own view? And where does your kingly right of owning who God gets to love need to be violated? Because God says, those nasty, vile people are the people I long to be with. And the gap closed. In Luke 15, the the opponents of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, are talking to Jesus And they say, uh, they're asking him different questions. And they're trying to trap him um, in and around Luke 15. And in that chapter, Jesus tells them many stories and many parables. But uh, one of them is the the very popular, very well-known parable of the prodigal son. And I'm sure you know it. I'm sure you know parts of it, at least. And what it is, is this, uh, the parable of two sons. And they have a father. There's an older and a younger son. And the younger son says to his father, I would like my inheritance now, which is saying, you are better to me dead than alive. And so his father says, okay. And his father gives his son his inheritance. This younger son uh, goes away to foreign lands, squanders his inheritance on uh, women, on, on drink, on food, on everything he could squander it on. Meanwhile, the older brother is working for his father, tending the fields, doing all these things he's supposed to do. And one day this younger son, who's squandered all of his wealth, has no money, gets a job. And he's feeding the pigs. And he's so hungry that he eats the pig slop. And as he's so low, and as he's so far down, as he's eating pig slop, he says to himself, wait a second, my father has these hired hands. Right? You know this story. He says, if I go back to my father, maybe he'll hire me as a hired hand. Surely, right? He goes back to his father. Uh, I'm going to read this. It's really hard to be read to. Uh, So I invite you to close your eyes. This, This person's eating pig slop, and he goes back to his father because he thinks, maybe I can eat my father's pig slop. Maybe that tastes a little bit better. And this is where it picks up in Luke 15. It says, 
as the son is coming back to the father. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he killed, sorry, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving and you've never and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always mine. You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You can open your eyes. In the story of Jonah, Jonah's angry and is outside the city, which means he refuses to go in. And God meets Jonah and says to him, don't you get it? That what I delight in is when my people go from death to life, go from being lost to being found. That's what I delight in. And here's how God shows this delight in it. Right? God is is talking to this angry prophet who's uh, angry at God. And God and Christ says this story of this older brother who feels entitled by something, entitled to something. He's filled with anger. And God speaks to this younger, or to this older son, excuse me. Here's how God shows that this gap that's there is closed. And it's by the perfect prophet. Jonah is this prophet that fails, right? We could write and talk all day long about Jonah being a failure in the book of Jonah. It's actually pretty amazing because Jonah is actually probably the one that writes the story. He's writing this autobiography of saying, this is what I thought. And this is what I said to God. And this is what happened. And I'm ashamed of it. Yet he still writes it anyway. 
And Christ is this perfect prophet in this way. It says in Luke 23, uh, it says, as Christ is carrying his cross from inside the city to outside the city with two criminals next to him also carrying crosses, it says in Luke 23, two other men, both criminals, were also led out of the city with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jonah is the prophet who goes outside of a city to look back on a city with anger and to see if God's going to destroy his enemy. And Christ goes outside of the city to die there. And as he's dying, he looks back on the city that's killing him actively and says, Jesus, says, God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. God, be merciful to these people. Jonah says, Lord, you've been merciful to the city right there. Shame on you. And Jesus is saying, God, they're killing me. That city right there. And God, show them your mercy. He's the perfect prophet. Right? One person said, Jonah went out of the city hoping to witness its condemnation, but Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. So that's, uh, that's rosy. It is. It, it fits right. The perfect prophet. But what's good about it? What's good about it is the fact that one of the most beautiful parts of the parable of the prodigal son is not the fact that the son returns thinking he'll eat his father's pig slop and maybe then he'll be taken care of. The beautiful part of that story is the fact that this father, who has been told by his son, I wish you were dead, sees that son on the distance and he runs to him and he puts the robe around him What's good about Christ being the perfect prophet is that he runs to us even when we run away. And that he's the hound of heaven and he will meet you exactly where you are and meet you with the words that God met Jonah with. Words of compassion that says, in your situation, in the spheres of your life, say to you, the very mercy I'm giving Dade County is good enough for Grace Trenton. And the good and the grace and, and mercy I'm giving Grace Trenton is good enough for Dade County. That's what's good about this perfect prophet is that he runs to us even as we run from him. And he meets us no matter what we've done and our doubt, our shame, our guilt, our confusion. He runs to us and he says... For this son or daughter of mine was dead. And now they're alive. And, and, and they throw the robe around us and put rings on our fingers and treats us with honor. And for you, 
Christ is the fattened calf that's killed. And he is glad to do it. Um, I can't look at Wade Anderson without just crying. Uh, Aside from the medical staff at Ray County uh, Medical Center, Wade and I were the only two people to see Ted Strawbridge after he passed away. And he and I walked in to see Ted. We're both crying, and Wade had the... The, the, the confidence and the gusto just to start praying in front of all these doctors and nurses and just praying and thanking God for who this, per, who this person was. And as Wade was praying and, and crying and then I was crying, my sister-in-law lives in Los Angeles and she just found out that her father has just died she runs to her backyard and she falls on her knees and she says to herself, my Savior did not die. That's the good news for her then. When she found out that her father had just tragically died, she said to herself, my Savior did not die when something that had been taken from her when a love was threatened for Jonah, he says, I want to die. My kingly right has been violated. Something's been taken from me to the point where I want to die. My sister-in-law, after losing her father, after that being taken from her, doesn't say, I want to die. Woe is me, throwing up my hands, throwing the towel in. What she says to herself of deep counsel is this. Even as I lost my father, my Savior did not die. You all have lost greatly in each and every one of your particular stories. And so I would humbly invite you to do is look at your life and say to yourself, I'm looking at this, and I know my labor is not in vain, because I know my Savior did not die. And in fact, that Savior runs to me now and says, this person has gone from death to life. They're lost and they're now found. And that's good enough for us this day. That's our daily bread. So with that in mind, let's pray to this perfect prophet. Lord, you left the 99 to go find and seek the one. You, Lord, were the hound of heaven. that comes to us. And so, Lord, if we are the 99 and looking and seeing you leaving, may we not be upset like Jonah is upset. But may we delight in what delights you in the fact that we are with our God. 
And there's no more weeping or crying when you make all things new, Jesus. And so, when we feel our kingly right uh, and, and we feel our loves being threatened, may we ask ourselves what God says to Jonah, the question of, do you do well to be angry? Knowing all along But Jesus, you ask us that because of the fact that our Savior did not die, cannot be taken from us. Holy Spirit, be with us this day. We ask this in Christ's name, the one who carried a tree, the one who looks back on a city that killed him, and looks back on a people like us who kill him, and says to his Father, Forgive them. We pray this in your name. Amen.